Welcome to Radio Rehab. I'm your host, Dana. I'm an addict and alcoholic. This is a show for other addicts and alcoholics and also for their families and for anyone who knows us. If this is your first time listening, we have over 300 episodes in the bank. You can go back and listen to all of them. If you can't get to a meeting right now, which is completely understandable, you can go back and listen to any of our episodes. Please do. We welcome you. And if you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and like us because uh, it makes me happy. Gives me a reason to wake up tomorrow. This is episode two of a two-part series with Richard Capriola, author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. In the last episode, we discussed the difference between adult and adolescent addiction, how drugs work within your child's brain, and which assessments and tests are important for your child. In this episode, we're going to go over his workbook. It's very hands-on. There's lots of places for you to write, lots of ideas. How do you do an intervention? How do you rate your child's motivation? warning signs, and what you can do to help. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. Along with the Addicted Child book, there's also the Addicted Child workbook. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, about some things that I marked off on here that I, I thought were interesting. Um, under the part that it says uh, rating your child's motivation, can you speak on that a little bit? Yes, when we look at motivation, um, it, it comes in different stages. People are different periods of, of, of motivation. Most of the adolescents that I dealt with were in what we call the pre-contemplation stage. That's denial. You know, it's not a problem. I don't know what you're talking about. It's no big deal. Why are you, why are you talking to me about this? That's denial. Um, a lot of adults are in the denial phase, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, the next step is is pre -contempl uh, uh, is contemplation. Okay, that's basically I recognize there's a problem. I don't know what I want to do about it. Maybe I want to quit. Maybe I don't want to quit. I'll give it some thought. And my point is that when you see an adolescent move from the pre-contemplation to the contemplation stage, that is a huge move. I've had young men and women come in that were clearly in the pre-contemplation stage, total denial. But by the time they left, they had at least moved to the contemplation stage, which, which said, I recognize that this is a problem. I, I see the pros, I see the cons, and I'm willing to keep an open mind on moving forward. So um, most adolescents, I think by the time they get to treatment or even into the assessment phase, um, they're going to be in the denial pre-contemplation stage. They don't want to change. And then after that, though, they're ready to say maybe. After maybe that, and, and that's a huge move. If, 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 yeah. if, if I can get a young man or a young woman out of that denial stage and get their mind open to at least where they're willing to, to look at it in a serious way, then I think that's a huge move for, for an adolescent. It's a huge move for an adult too, but, 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 <laughs> but, but it is, it, it, it is, it is the beginning of, of, of moving in a direction that ultimately may very well lead to their sobriety. Excellent. And uh, I also want to talk about, there's a part in the workbook called process disorders. And one thing we haven't discussed yet is uh, kids addiction to their cell phone and to video games. And I'm wondering where that comes in in this whole process. 
Well, there are process addictions and there are chemical addictions. The chemical addictions are the alcohol and drugs. The process addictions tend to be more behavioral type of an addictions, but they have the same characteristics. They can be, become compulsive. They can have withdrawal uh, symptoms. Um, so the kinds of things that, that I saw when it came to adolescence was self-injury. So a lot of girls who were who were cutting um, and smoking marijuana. Um, I saw some that had an eating disorder um, that often accompanies alcohol or drug use. Um, and then there's video gaming, there's cell phone use. All of these are behavioral characteristics and they, they will stimulate the brain in the same way an alcohol or drug will. And by that, I mean, they will get a rush of dopamine, the pleasure chemical in the brain. You can have an adolescent and the, you hear the little ding on a cell phone, meaning a text message is coming through. And it's like, you know, whoa, wow, this is, this is great. You, they get that pleasurable feeling, the same pleasurable feeling uh, on, on the chemical side that uh, an adolescent will get when they have a drink or they smoke marijuana. Same thing when the cell phone goes off. Um, so these process addictions often accompany a chemical addiction. Like I said, you, I, I had young girls who were smoking a boatload of marijuana and also self-injuring. So the important thing is if as a parent, you suspect one of these process disorders are going on, you need to have that assessed as well as the chemical alcohol and drug uh, problem as well. You need to assess and treat both. Do you feel like there's like any of the process disorders go specifically with certain drugs? Like you talked about marijuana and cutting. Um, I'm just wondering about the amount of kids who use Ritalin and Adderall, because I know when they stop, they get hungry and tired and they're going to gain weight. And I mean, when I did speed in high school, like I still had baby fat on me. It came off right away. It was very obvious. I had to wear huge clothes. Like, is there anything specifically that ties eating disorders to um, like Adderall and Ritalin that you've noticed? Most of, most of the girls that I treated who were using, uh, were using marijuana uh, or self-injury. I did not see very many that were using a, a Ritalin or an Adderall. Um, I think that's out there. I think it, it, it can accompany some of these process disorders. Uh, the other thing is, I think we underestimate the number of males who may ha be having a process disorder like cutting uh, or, or even uh, an eating disorder. I think it's out there. I just think it's a lot further below the surface than what we're seeing with girls. Just about all of the patients that I had who were cutting were young girls. Um, right. And the same with the eating disorder. They were almost all girls. Yeah, I was in a treatment center that was a six to nine month program and all like most of the girls had underlying issues besides, you know, their drug addiction and alcoholism. And it was the guys who got away with it. Like they were on the girls. Like you couldn't even go to the bathroom after you ate dinner. Like every, they thought everybody had an eating disorder, but they didn't look at the guys. And it turned out one guy there did have an eating disorder. And one of the other guys was cutting himself and nobody yeah. noticed because they were guys. That's right. It, 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 it's, that's, that's a good example of how sometimes we can just assume that this is a female problem and not a male problem, which gives then the, the males a little bit more freedom to be able to get away with it. Right. How would you suggest intervening on, on the process addictions? You know, like, like say they're doing that, you know, like you said, they're hitting, they're getting the same dopamine they would get from using actual drugs, but they're obsessing on video games or Twitter or whatever. How would you suggest the parent intervene on that? 
in the same way they do for the chemical uh, addictions uh, to get an assessment done to to begin with uh, with a conversation to to try and get an understanding of what's going on. Um, you know, I, I had one young man who who was addicted to video games, and his parents, you know, basically came down on him and and took away all of his gaming material. Well, what did he do? He went to his brother's room and took his brother's gaming material <laughs> and, <laughs> and just took it and started playing with it. So um, if you suspect that there's any type of process addiction, I think it's 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 wise to get that assessed. Uh, it, it may be masking in a way uh, a chemical addiction that's going on too. So you may under, uncover both at the same time. Right. Um, there's another part where it, you list checking your emotions. I was wondering, my question was, is this where, so it's, it's got an, it's got a list of emotions. This is in the workbook, you know, going from afraid, angry, ashamed, impatient, annoyed, isolated, guilty, regretful, skeptical, all the feelings. Uh, <laughs> are the parents supposed to look at the kid and go, I see this, I see fear. So I'm going to check afraid. Or is it that you, do you ask the, the child to answer these questions? No, this is really for the parent. Okay. This is basically the feelings that they're going through because what I noticed was so much energy, so much effort was being placed on the child that we neglected the parent. You know, many parents, when they discover that their child is using alcohol or drugs and they get the diagnosis, uh, they begin to feel guilty. They, they, they wonder, where did I miss the warning signs? How did I mess this up? What did I do wrong? Am I a bad parent? So now you've got all of these parental feelings welling up in the parent. Not only are they dealing with the child and everything the child's going through, now they have to deal with their own emotions and they have nowhere to turn. So I put that exercise in the, in the workbook to help parents at least begin to recognize some of the intense feelings that they're going through at the same time. Yes. And I, I can, can relate to that. So my dad was also an addict and an alcoholic, but he got clean and sober when I was 10 years old. So I don't have much of a memory of when he was drinking and using. I have more of a memory of him being in AA and being sober and being very open and very honest with me. And I know because of his experience, he felt, I mean, up until the day he died, I think he felt guilty for my addiction. Like it was his fault. Yeah. And, and I think that's a very common feeling, especially when you are in recovery yourself and you find out that your child is now using a substance. Um, you, you begin to, I think, not only feel bad, but question, where did I go wrong? What did I do? And, 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 and then a lot of the parents that I worked with not only had to come to terms with their child using a substance like alcohol or drugs and having a disorder, they had to come to terms with learning that their child has a serious underlying psychological issue that accompanies it. So now they learn, okay, my child has a severe substance use disorder and also has severe depression or severe uh, anxiety or perhaps an emerging uh, uh, psychiatric disorder like schizophrenia. Oh, oh yeah. Because that would definitely require medication. I know. I mean, even for like adults who are drinking and using, it's always an underlying issue. It's, you know, rarely because like there is no party anymore. It's rarely because of that. It's usually because of depression or anxiety or, yeah. you know, even other mental health issues. Might. Yes. Yes. Where would you suggest that people go to get help? Because people are listening to this in, in all different states. So like, is there like a website or a place where you would suggest people go to get help if they have questions? I would suggest that they begin by reading my book, mm -hmm. okay, just to get a basic understanding of what may be going on with their child. 
And then uh, if they want help on getting an assessment, I think there are several places they can start. They can start with their family physician who may very well give them some referrals to psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, if they don't have a family physician, they can go to the school counselor and see if they can get some referrals there. They can call the local mental health, uh, the, the NAMI organization or some other mental health organization to get referrals. The thing is, is they want to move to the point where they are getting these assessments done. And there's a number of resources out there that can help them make referrals to get these assessments done. I also want to talk about the connecting with your teen. That was one of my favorite parts of the workbook because I learned how to have conversations with other adults like this in recovery, the whole when you, I feel, you know, I mean, when we first went to treatment centers, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I remember getting in trouble for saying, you make me feel like, you know, cause that's <laughs> you, you can't be made to feel a certain way. It's right. when you, I feel, and that was so hard to just, it was hard to grasp. Now I do it cause it's ingrained in my head. But when you said ask open-ended questions so you could get more of like more than a yes or no question answer, how do you do that with a teenager? Because they're all like, sometimes they don't even say no. They just go, uh-uh, and they turn their head, you know? Well, when you ask these closed-in questions, you're going to get a closed-in response. So if you ask the kind of question that sets the child up for a yes or no answer, you're going to get a yes or no answer. Like, are um, you doing drugs? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and the parent says, okay, let's, let's go on, because that's what they want to hear. Right. Um, but you give the child an out, an easy answer. What you want to do is ask a question that doesn't, number one, lead to a simple yes or no answer, but rather gets the them to open up a little bit more. Um, so that takes practice. Uh, you're, you may not be very good at it the first time around, but the more you practice a skill, the better that you get uh, to, to be able to, to use it. Um, and that's true for adolescents learning skills too. I knew young girls who were very good at dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, they knew all the acronyms, they knew all the things, but they never practiced them. They, they, could teach, they could teach it. They knew it that well. They knew the skills. They could teach the skills, but they never practiced the skills. And I say to people, consider it to be a, like a tool chest. The more tools you have in the tool chest, the more likely you're going to be able to have one when you need it. The first one you pick out of the tool chest might not work, but if it's the only tool in your tool chest, you're screwed. So right. the best thing to do is have multiple tools in that tool chest. If the first one doesn't work, you pick up the second. So back to your question, though, I think as a parent, you don't want to use closed-ended type of questions that really prompt the child to say yes or no. You want to have open-ended questions that can lead to a discussion. Um, you know, how did your day go in school? They're going to say, okay. Well, if you just leave it, if you just leave it at okay. <laughs> well, then you want to know, well, tell me a little bit more about why you think it was fine. Tell me a little bit more about why you think it was okay and see if they'll, if you can expand upon that. You probably will get a very yes or no to beginning, but you can use that and, and expand upon it. Um, do you think it's a good idea to talk to kids who have not had any history of, of drinking or using and don't seem to be headed that way. Like when they're like 12 years old, 13 years old, do you think it makes sense to have these conversations with them, even though it's really not part of who they, I've always wondered, does it put the idea in their head to have a conversation with them when it's something they're not even interested in? Like say it's a kid who loves to do gymnastics and they make good grades. 
They're like, why are you talking to me about drugs? <laughs> uh, because if you don't talk to him, probably some other kid will talk to him. Right. The um, answer is yes, it is. Yeah, it is a good idea. And, and what I noticed makes a difference with adolescents. The, the adolescents that I treated who were using alcohol or drugs, it doesn't do me any good to tell them it's illegal. It doesn't do me any good to, to give them a lecture. That that didn't work. They've heard it. They've heard it a hundred times or more. But what did work, Dana? What did work? What worked was the neuroscience behind the addiction. When I could sit down with them and have a discussion about how alcohol and drugs affects their de developing brain. I had their attention. These were very bright young men and women. Most of them had IQs that were above average. So they were very bright. Um, but for any adolescent, the, I think the, the key to, to, to getting them to listen to you is to talk to them about something that they're interested in. And what they were interested in was the neuroscience. So I would show them an outline of a brain and show them the different areas of the brain and what it was responsible for. This area is responsible for coordination. This one's responsible for vision. This one's responsible for higher order thinking. And then I would show them another picture of that same brain image, but it would had a picture of where marijuana attached itself to all of the areas of the brain. So they very quickly were able to see marijuana attaches itself everywhere in the brain, but it's really concentrated in these areas. Maybe that's why my coordination isn't so good. Maybe that's why my short-term memory isn't so good. And maybe that's why the processing speed of my brain isn't very good. They were very interested in learning about how this affects their brain. That's really interesting. I had a therapist who talked to me about that. I was like, I, that was the first time I had heard the word hippocampus and amygdala. I'm like, finally, you're not just talking about psychobabble stuff. I've heard a million times before. It was very interesting. But my, I do have a question about um, marijuana use and everything in young people. Will there, because when you're an alcoholic, you get sober, your liver heals itself. It just will if you quit drinking. But does your brain heal itself? That's a great question. Um, our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. Doesn't matter how old we are, doesn't matter what substances we, we, we've used. Once we stop using the substance, our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. And, 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 and the changes and the improvements are, are significant. Now, how much will the brain heal? Well, that depends on how young you were when you started which particular drugs you use, some are more damaging than others, and how long you used. Much more difficult to, to, um, to treat somebody who's been addicted to cocaine for 20 years than it is somebody who's been uh, addicted to cocaine for two, three, or four or five years. So a lot has to deal with how extensive the damage has been. But even in those cases, our brains have a remarkable capacity to heal themselves. And the message from that is that there's hope. There's hope for everyone. You know, regardless of the drug, regardless of the age when you started, regardless of how long you used, with treatment and with the commitment to maintain sobriety, there is hope and the brain does heal itself. That's really good news. Uh, because I know if I was a teenager and I heard, oh, you ruined your brain, I would be like, well, then, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep going. <laughs> my, I think my first, my very first drug was nitrous. 
because you don't have to be any age to get a can of whipped cream, you know, like, so, and then of course it turned into whippets and all that. But I remember somebody in high school saying, you know, every time you do that, it kills at least 10 brain cells and they're dead for good. And I remember going, well, I guess I'm ruined. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you bring up uh, the uh, the inhalants. Yeah. Um, what we tend to see in the adolescent population is inhalant use uh, primarily among very young kids. You know, seven, eight, nine, ten years of, of, of age, because these are substances that are readily available to them. You can find them around the house. Yeah. Um, but but as they get older and they move into the teenage years, inhalant use trails off significantly because they've moved on to something else. But the danger in young adolescent use of inhalants is because you're putting a very, a very dangerous substance into a very undeveloped brain. And, and, and also when you're using many of these inhalants like whippets, for example, they give you a very quick high, but it doesn't last very long. So the person tends to repeat it. I've, I've, I've treated adults that have gone through hundreds of cartridges uh, of, of nitrous oxide. But when you have somebody who's eight, nine, 10, or 11 years old, and they start to abuse these uh, in a very young developing brain, uh, you run the risk of a, of a lot more damage. But uh, for most adolescents, they move out of this stage as they get into the later 10 year, uh, teen years, and they've moved on to other substances. It's like, you, yeah, just like you said, that was exactly what happened for me. I moved on to other substances because I was able to get them. So why do I need whipped cream? You know, yeah. Like you and, don't do that when you can get other stuff. And and when you mentioned that you were able to get them brings up two other issues that are important with adolescent addiction. The first one is availability. When you ask young men and women, adolescents, how is it, how easy is it for you to get say alcohol? Almost 80% of seniors will tell you it's pretty easy. You know, it's not hard at all. Um, about 30% of them will tell you, uh, I can get LSD with no problem. And, and about 80% of them will tell you, I can get alcohol. So availability is one issue. The other issue is harmfulness. Okay, we know you can get these substances. How harmful do you think they are? And that's where we begin to see, for example, uh, only about 30% of seniors will tell you that marijuana use, regular marijuana use is harmful. And, and about 25% of seniors will say having one or two drinks, only 25% of seniors will say having one or two drinks nearly every day is harmful. So not only are these substances easily available, the perception among adolescents is they're not very harmful either. Right. Because I mean, that's what they ask. Do you have more? I like I've heard that question all the time, even on TV. Like, do you have more than three drinks a night? I'm like, who decided that that? Like, cause I'm an alcoholic. I could have three drinks a night and it would be in like this, like my water bottle. It would be, you know, <laughs> that counts as three drinks, three 32 ounces of vodka, you know, like, so it's like addicts can do that. You know, we can manipulate that question when we're Absolutely. older. <laughs> yeah, when you get older. Uh, but I but I think the perception that um, they're easily available, alcohol and, and, and marijuana, and they're not very harmful, I think explains a lot of why we're seeing the uh, the use that we do. The flippant, yeah. Oh, well, because I guess, you know, Oxycontin and morphine sulfate have made such a big splash all over the country that people look at marijuana and alcohol like, well, alcohol is legal. Well, so is marijuana now. They're yeah. legal. Right. So, um, I, my last question about this workbook is, so like, for example, when I'm doing my steps in recovery and I do my fourth step, 
I have to read that to my sponsor uh, and work through it with her. Do you suggest that somebody does this book with someone else, not just themselves at home? Yes, I would say uh, it can be helpful if you're doing it by yourself. Uh, but I think it's even more helpful if you were to work the exercises and share them with either a therapist or a counselor or even a close friend, somebody that you trust. I think they can give you feedback on it and, and help you see things that maybe you're not able to see yourself. So absolutely, I would recommend that that you use the workbook in consultation with somebody that you, that you value and you trust. Excellent, that sounds like a good idea. Well, I hope everybody who has any kid, even if your kid's not addicted, goes out and gets The Addictive Child. It's a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse because I learned so much, even being an adolescent who had substance abuse problems. Like I learned a lot reading this and I love this book. And I think the workbook is really key. I think that's such a great idea that you can have the book with an accompanying thing that you can actually take action on and work through with your kids. So I hope everybody goes out and buys this. And I'm so thankful to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Dana. I think your contributions and, and, and your input made it a much more valuable session. So I want to I I I say that I really appreciate your input. Uh, it was very helpful. Thank you. So nice to have you on the show. And that concludes our two-part series with Richard Capriola, author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, which also has an accompanying workbook, which is amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show, Rick. And everybody go out and buy that book. It's very insightful. Be sure and stay tuned for our next episode when producer Shar and I drop our weekly deuce. Thank you for listening and keep coming back. If you want to be on the show or you know anyone who should be on the show, please contact us. The email is radiorehab at gotoproductions.com. That's go-toproductions.com. You can also call or text 415-496-9511, even when we're not in studio. And on all the socials, it's at Radio Rehab Dana, D-A-Y-N-A. Thank you for listening. Keep coming back.